Welcome to American Stories Brought to Life. I'm Will Thomas. Today, we're going to look at one of the first times in American history when American soldiers shot and killed American citizens in the streets of American cities. You may be thinking about the shootings at Kent State University and Jackson State University, both in May of 1970, at the height of the Vietnam War. But the use of force against American citizens began more than a century earlier in the summer of 1877. At 5 o'clock on July 21st, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, National Guard soldiers opened fire on a crowd of civilians. In five minutes, more than 20 people had been killed, more than 60 seriously wounded. How did a protest by American citizens become, in the eyes of the government, an insurrection? Something changed on that day in Pittsburgh. When we come back, what changed? How did this happen? And we'll talk with an expert on the history of American riots and rioting. Welcome back to American Stories Brought to Life. I'm Will Thomas. We're talking today about the moment on July 21st, 1877, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, when National Guard soldiers shot into a crowd of civilians in the streets during a national labor strike that began on the railroads. Railroads were the very epitome of the soulless corporation. And in 1877, their wage cuts and their reductions in hours for employees had devastated the American working class. Railroad companies were running longer trains with less crew. Wages had been cut by 10% and then 10% again, and then 10% again. And after four years of a major depression, times were desperate. But the railroad men weren't just protesting the wage cuts. They blockaded the tracks. They occupied the depots and the rail yards. They threatened and drove off replacement crews. And effectively, they shut down the railroads from operating. Crowds gathered in the streets and they supported them. Families came out, women and children, the local police and the state militia units drawn from the local areas were largely sympathetic. Many of them knew one another. But when the National Guard troops from Philadelphia arrived in Pittsburgh, a crowd began to gather around the depot. More and more people came into the streets, and within a few hours, there were thousands. Some of them were strikers. Some of them were spectators. Some of them were dismissed railroad men with a grievance, and some were just spoiling for a fight. Surrounded by the strikers, the Philadelphia troops fixed their bayonets, unlimbered their Gatling guns, and raised their rifles. One of the men in the crowd cried, You wouldn't shoot a working man! No one knows who fired the first shot. But within minutes, it was a massacre. 
A few days after the violence, a local photographer in Pittsburgh named Seth Voss Albee took a series of 42 stereoscopic photographs. These are extremely rare to find today. You can see one on our website at animatinghistory.com. You may have seen similar images from the Civil War. They would have been shown through a handheld viewer that rendered the image into a three-dimensional view with depth and extraordinary detail. Albee, like the great Civil War photographers Alexander Gardner and Andrew Russell, composed each of these images to evoke the scale of the destructiveness in Pittsburgh. One is simply titled 28th Street and Upper Roundhouse. Citizens shot here. We are joined today by Patrick Honey, a doctoral candidate in history at the University of Nebraska who is researching American riots and has written on the history of American extra-legal mob actions. Patrick Honey, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dr. Thomas. It's wonderful to be here. Let's start with this question. What's the history of crowd actions like this? Well, the history of popular extra-legal crowd action is older than the history of the United States itself. The American tradition of politics out of doors can initially be traced back to England. There, rioting or crowd action was tolerated as a form of working class political expression and an extension of the right of communities to defend their interests. This understanding accompanied English colonists to America and became a familiar element of colonial culture. Effigy burnings, chivalries, and intermittent riots all emerged from this tradition. How was rioting an extension of the people's fundamental right to assemble and petition? That is traditionally how it's been understood. This was seen as an invaluable tool for working class uh, Americans to be able to express and influence government and to have their voice really be heard. Uh, it was always understood that maybe they weren't able to participate in government themselves or engage in pamphlet based discussions, but the right to assemble, the right to demand change, that was always seen as a traditional and irreplaceable tool for working class Americans to have their voice heard. So when the crowds assemble in Baltimore in the summer of 1877, by the thousands, ten, over 10,000 people in the streets of Baltimore, when the crowds assemble in Pittsburgh, they, are, they, may, they see themselves as part of this uh, tradition, part of the, uh, expressing themselves in a um, sometimes raucous, sometimes what may appear threatening way, but fundamentally within their rights as Americans. Exactly. When you have that, there's that one incident in the unrest of one of the protesters, one of the strikers telling a soldier, you want to shoot a working man. He may well have really believed that because they were acting squarely in the tradition of politics out of doors. What they were doing was not a, a radical or unheard of thing in American history. This was a common form of speech that had been practiced before the nation's founding, during the revolution itself, and constantly thereafter up until 1877. So let's, co let's compare the strike of 1877 to say the New York City draft riots in 1863. What, what was different between 1863 and the response to the, the draft riots and 
1877. Well, at first, it might seem natural to compare the 1877 strike and violence to the 1863 draft riot. I mean, both events involved scenes of urban violence on a massive scale. Both involved clashes between troops and civilians. Both produced these fevered scenes of members of the crowd spiriting away the dead and the wounded. But when you really get into the details and examine the context, the two incidents can be more different. The 1863 draft riot occurs in the middle of the Civil War. Um, Irish New Yorkers who were ostensibly incensed by the draft uh, launch a brutal and violent campaign against their chief economic competition, which are African-Americans, because they're not only opposed to the draft and war, but they're opposed to emancipation, which they fear will bring more economic competition to the city. And so in the draft riots, you see widespread racially motivated destruction, murder, and torture, which precedes the intervention of federal troops, precedes the, the, the violence that the state visits upon the rioters. This was a really terrible race riot in the middle of a wartime city. Many New Yorkers were so shocked by the devastation that they, that they thought the whole affair had been orchestrated by Confederate agents. Now, this wasn't the case, but the existence of those rumors really speaks to the sense of over-treason and danger that was engendered by the draft riots. So there had been riots in 1835 uh, across the United States. Um, there had been the draft riots in 1863. There were race riots, of course, in southern cities like Memphis in 1866, where white men opposed um, black suffrage and black uh, political activism in the aftermath of the Civil War. But these riots were all different from what happened in 1877. How? Well, in a big way, and to compare it really directly to the draft riots, but to really other riot in American history, the violent suppression of 1877 was not initially prompted by large-scale bloodshed and killing. When you see um, racist white Americans attacking and killing African Americans, that generally does not invoke a really extreme state response. Earlier, even labor unrest might have involved some tensions with the state, maybe some violence, but not killing on the scale you see in 1877. In many ways, the massed crowd and strike in Pittsburgh was acting squarely in the older tradition of American politics out of doors, using assembly and occupation to relay grievances and communicate demands. This was nothing as radical as in 1863 New York with the wholesale murder and plunder and destruction. No one was mutilating anyone in the street or and no one was cheering the enemy of an enemy state or the leader of an enemy state. And then all of a sudden you have soldiers gunning down citizens, which really hadn't happened, not in 1835, not in 1866, without the precedent of wholesale violence. So we can see the response as a major divergence in the way Americans understood what was happening in a large-scale protest, a riotous occasion like this, like what was happening in Martinsburg, West Virginia, in Baltimore, and Pittsburgh. The response is different in 1877. It is. Earlier in American history, well, you might have always had elites that were somewhat uncomfortable with the 
to be an expression of their interest through this sort of assembly. It had always been a tolerated or even quasi accepted form of expression. Now you have commentators that are witnessing the, the shooting and the killing and the, the dismissing the crowd as anarchists and barbarians who are fully deserving of the violence being visited upon them by the state's forces. So it's, it's worth, worth asking what's changed. Um, earlier in American history, crowd action could be interpreted by many witnesses as a manifestation of unity and shared values. The defenders of that kind of activity, after all, often pointed to the use of extra legal methods by communities seeking to defend their interests or regulate values. Now, with the accelerating tensions between labor and capital in 1877, with increased migration, with rapid societal changes, crowd action is increasingly becoming associated with disunion. What had once been a really robust venue for non-elite political expression became, in the eyes of the state, and many middle-class Americans, something to be distrusted and violently opposed. In some ways, as you said, this marks a really important divergence in American history, not on the part of the crowd, but on the part of the state and its response. One of the critical moments in this story came when the governor of West Virginia asked President Rutherford B. Hayes for federal troops to quell the strike. He called the strikers an unlawful combination that sparked domestic violence. And the state militia, he said, was not enough. He did not say why that was so. State militia, it turns out, sympathized with the strikers. Hayes's initial response is telling. His secretary wrote back to the governor of West Virginia, the president is averse to intervention unless it is clearly shown that the state is unable to suppress the insurrection. Please furnish a full statement of facts. What force can the state raise? How strong are the insurgents? Hayes was skeptical, obviously, of sending federal troops, but from the start, the president considered the strike an insurrection and the strikers insurgents. The people in the streets, the crowds, had a long tradition behind them of the right to assemble and make their grievances heard. Riotous crowds before and after the American Revolution gave voice to the people. In the name of protecting order and property, the president and the governors put soldiers in the streets and turned their rifles on citizens. And it was a fiasco. Thank you, Patrick Honey, and thank you all for listening. Keep up the social distancing and tune in for our next podcast on Native American sovereignty and constitutional rights. American Stories Brought to Life is a production of Animating History. Follow us on our website at animatinghistory.com and on Twitter at Animating History. I'm Will Thomas. <laughs>